Section seven of A Book of Scoundrels by Charles Wibley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gilderoy and Sixteen String Jack. Part one. Gilderoy. He stood six feet ten in his stockinged feet, and was the tallest ruffian that ever cut a purse or held up a coach on a highway. A mass of black hair curled over a low forehead and a glittering eye intensified his villainous aspect, nor did a deep scar furrowing his cheek from end to end soften the horror of his sudden apparition. Valiant men shuddered at his approach, women shrank from the distant echo of his name. For fifteen years he terrorised Scotland from Caithness to the border, and the most partial chronicler never insulted his memory with the record of a good deed. He was born to a gentle family in the calendar of Monteith, and was celebrated even in boyhood for his feats of strength and daring. While still at school he could hold a hundredweight at arm's length, and crumple up a horseshoe like a wisp of hay. The fleetest runner, the most desperate fighter in the country, he was already famous before his name was besmirched with crime, and he might have been immortalised as the Hercules of the seventeenth century had not his ambition been otherwise flattered. At the outset, though the inclination was never lacking, he knew small temptation to break the sterner laws of conduct. His pleasures were abundantly supplied by his father's generosity, and he had no need to refrain from such vices as became a gentleman. If he was no drunkard, it was because his head was equal to the severest strain, and despite his forbidding expression, he was always a successful breaker of hearts. His very masterfulness overcame the most stubborn resistance, and more than once the pressure of his dishonourable suit converted hatred into love. At the very time that he was denounced for Scotland's disgrace, his praises were chanted in many a dejected ballad. Gilderoy was a bonny boy, sang one heartbroken maiden, had roses till his shoon, his stockings were of silken soy, regatta's hanging doon. But in truth he was admired less for his amiability than for that quality of governance which, when once he had torn the decalogue to pieces, made him a veritable emperor of crime. His father's death was the true beginning of his career. A modest patrimony was squandered in six months, and Gilderoy had no penny left wherewith to satisfy the vices which insisted upon indulgence. He demanded money at all hazards, and money without toil. For a while his more loudly clamant needs were fulfilled by the amiable simplicity of his mother, whom he blackmailed with insolence and contempt. And when she, wearied by his shameless importunity, at last withdrew her support, he determined upon a monstrous act of vengeance. With a noble affectation of penitence he visited his home, promised reform at supper, and said good-night in the broken accent of reconciliation. No sooner was the house sunk in slumber than he crawled stealthily upstairs in order to forestall by theft a promised generosity. He opened the door of the bedchamber in a hushed silence. But the wrenching of the coffer-lid awoke the sleeper, and Gilderoy, having cut his mother's throat with an infamous levity, seized whatever money and jewels were in the house, cruelly maltreated his sister, 
and laughingly burnt the house to the ground, that the possibility of evidence might be destroyed. Henceforth his method of plunder was assured. It was part of his philosophy to prevent detection by murder, and the flames from the burning walls added a pleasure to his lustful eye. His march across Scotland was marked by slaughtered families and ruined houses. Plunder was the first cause of his exploits, but there is no doubt that death and arson were a solace to his fierce spirit, and for a while this giant of cruelty knew neither check nor hindrance. Presently it became a superstition with him that death was the inevitable accompaniment of robbery, and as he was incapable of remorse he grew callous and neglected the simplest precautions. At Dunkeld he raised a rifled house to the ground, and with the utmost effrontery repeated the performance at Aberdeen. But at last he had been tracked by a company of soldiers, who, that justice might not be cheated of her prey, carried him to jail, where after the briefest trial he was condemned to death. Gilderoy, however, was still master of himself. His immense strength not only burst his bonds, but broke prison, and this invincible Samson was once more free in Aberdeen, inspiring that respectable city with a legendary dread. The reward of one hundred pounds was offered in vain. Had he shown himself on the road in broad daylight, none would have dared to arrest him, and it was not until his plans were deliberately laid that he crossed the sea. The more violent period of his career was at an end. Never again did he yield to his passion for burning and sudden death and if the world found him unconquerable, his self-control is proved by the fact that in the heyday of his strength he turned from his unredeemed brutality to a gentler method. He now deserted Scotland for France, with which, like all his countrymen, he claimed a cousinship. And so profoundly did he impose upon Paris with his immense stature, his elegant attire, his courtly manners, for he was courtesy itself when it pleased him, that he was taken for an eminent scholar or at least a soldier of fortune. Prosperity might doubtless have followed a discreet profession, but Gilderoy must still be thieving, and he reaped a rich harvest amongst the unsuspicious courtiers of France. His most highly renowned exploit was performed at Saint-Denis, and the record of France's humiliation is still treasured. The great church was packed with ladies of fashion and their devout admirers, Richelieu attended in state. The king himself shone upon the assembly. The strange Scotsman, whom no man knew and all men wondered at, attracted a hundred eyes to himself and to his magnificent equipment. But it was not his to be idle, and at the very moment whereat mass was being sung, he contrived to lighten Richelieu's pocket of a purse. The king was a delighted witness of the theft. Gilderoy, assuming an air of facile intimacy, motioned him to silence, and he, deeming it a trick put upon Richelieu by a friend, hastened at the service-end to ask his minister if perchance he had a purse of gold upon him. Richelieu instantly discovered the loss, to the king's uncontrolled hilarity, which was mitigated when it was found that the thief, having emptied the king's pocket in the unguarded moment of his merriment, had left them both the poorer. Such were Gilderoy's interludes of gaiety. And when you remember the cynical ferocity of his earlier performance, 
you cannot deny him the credit of versatility. He stayed in France until his ominous reputation was too widely spread, whereupon he crossed the Pyrenees, travelling like a gentleman in a brilliant carriage of his own. From Spain he carried off a priceless collection of silver plate, and he returned to his own country, fatigued yet unsoftened by the grand tour. Meanwhile a forgetful generation had not kept his memory green. The monster who punished Scotland a year ago with fire and sword had passed into oblivion, and Gilderoy was able to establish for himself a new reputation. He departed as far as possible from his ancient custom, joined the many cavaliers who were riding up and down the country, pistol in hand, and presently proved a dauntless highwayman. He had not long ridden in the neighbourhood of Perth before he met the Earl of Linlithgow, from whom he took a gold watch, a diamond ring, and eighty guineas. Being an outlaw, he naturally espoused the king's cause, and would have given a year of his life to meet a regicide. Once upon a time, says a rumour, he found himself face to face with Oliver Cromwell, whom he dragged from his coach, set ignominiously upon an ass, and so turned adrift with his feet tied under the beast's belly. The story is incredible, not only because the loyal historians of the time caused Oliver to be robbed daily on every road in Great Britain, but because our Gilderoy, had he ever confronted the protector, most assuredly would not have allowed him to escape with his life. Tired of scouring the highway, Gilderoy resolved upon another enterprise. He collected a band of fearless ruffians, and placed himself at their head. With this army to aid, he harried Sutherland and the north, lifting cattle, plundering homesteads, and stopping wayfarers with a humour and adroitness worthy of Robin Hood. No longer a lawless adventurer, he made his own conditions of life, and forced the people to obey him. He who would pay Gilderoy a fair contribution ran no risk of losing his sheep or oxen, but evasion was impossible and the smallest suspicion of falsehood was punished by death. The peaceably inclined paid their toll with regret. The more daring opposed the raider to their miserable undoing. The timid satisfied the utmost exactions of Gilderoy, and deemed themselves fortunate if they left the country with their lives. Thus Scotland became a land of dread. The most restless man within her borders hardly dared travel beyond his buyer. The law was powerless against this indomitable scourge, and the reward of a thousand marks would have been offered in vain, had not Gilderoy's cruelty estranged his mistress. This traitress, Peg Cunningham was her name, less for avarice than in revenge for many insults and infidelities, at last betrayed her master. Having decoyed him to her house, she admitted fifty armed men and thus imagined a full atonement for her unnumbered wrongs. But Gilderoy was triumphant to the last. Instantly, suspecting the treachery of his mistress, he burst into her bedchamber, and, that she might not enjoy the price of blood, ripped her up with a hanger. Then he turned defiant upon the army arrayed against him, and killed eight men before the others captured him. Disarmed after a desperate struggle, he was loaded with chains and carried to Edinburgh, where he was starved for three days, and then hanged, without the formality of a trial, on a gibbet thirty feet high, set up in the grass market. 
even then Scotland's vengeance was unsatisfied. The body, cut down from its first gibbet, was hung in chains forty feet above Leith Walk, where it creaked and gibbered as a warning to evildoers for half a century, until at last the inhabitants of that respectable quarter petitioned that Gilderoy's bones should cease to rattle, and that they should enjoy the peace impossible for his jingling skeleton. Gilderoy was no drawing-room scoundrel, no villain of schoolgirl romance. He felt remorse as little as he felt fear, and there was no crime from whose commission he shrank. Before his death he confessed to thirty-seven murders, and bragged that he had long since lost count of his robberies and rapes. Something must be abated for boastfulness, but after all deductions there remains a tale of crime that is unsurpassed. His most admirably artistic quality is his complete consistence. He was a ruffian, finished and rotund. He made no concession, he betrayed no weakness. Though he never preached a sermon against the human race, he practised a brutality which might have proceeded from a gospel of hate. He spared neither friends nor relatives, and he murdered his own mother with as light a heart as he sent a strange widow of Aberdeen to her death. His skill is undoubted, and he proved by the discipline of his band that he was not without some talent of generalship. But he owed much of his success to his physical strength, and to the temperament which never knew the scandal of hesitancy or dread. A born marauder, he devoted his life to his trade, and despite his travels in France and Spain, he enjoyed few intervals of merriment. Even the humour which proved his redemption was as dour and grim as Scotland can furnish at her grimmest and dourest. Here is a specimen will serve as well as another. Three of Gilderoy's gang had been hanged according to the sentence of a certain lord of session, and the chieftain, for his own vengeance and the intimidation of justice, resolved upon an exemplary punishment. He waylaid the lord of session, emptied his pockets, killed his horses, broke his coach in pieces, and, having bound his lackeys, drowned them in a pond. This was but the prelude of revenge, for presently, and here is the touch of humour, he made the Lord of Session ride at dead of night to the gallows, whereon the three malefactors were hanging. One arm of the crossbeams was still untenanted. "'By my soul, mon!' cried Gilderoy to the Lord of Session, as this gibbet is built to break people's craigs, and is not uniform without another, I must e'en hang you upon the vacant beam. And straightway the Lord of Session swung in the moonlight, and Gilderoy had cracked his black and solemn joke. This sense of fun is the single trait which relieves the colossal turpitude of Gilderoy, and though even his turpitude was melodramatic in its lack of balance, it is a unity of character which is the foundation of his greatness. He was no fumbler, led away from his purpose by the first diversion. His ambition was clear before him, and he never fell below it. He defied Scotland for fifteen years, was hanged so high that he passed into a proverb, and though his handsome, sinister face might have made women his slaves, he was never betrayed by passion, or by virtue, to an amiability. 
End of section 7